This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so it's been one of the longest-running dramas, sagas in Hollywood. Um, well, maybe not, but we've certainly asked it many times. Uh, we've talked with the CEO of the Walt Disney Company about it. We're talking about Bob Iger and who will succeed him. Uh, right now, he's the one uh, who has stayed in place at that company a long time and running. Chris Palmieri is L.A. Bureau Chief at Bloomberg News, joining us uh, from our bureau in Los Angeles. Hey, Chris, good to have you here with Jason and myself. You write a story on the terminal, uh, and you talk about about this Fox Disney deal uh, that they have wrapped up um, and how that adds drama to who will succeed Bob Iger. What's going on here? What's the talk? Well, you know, the Walt Disney Company is just one of these places nobody ever wants to leave. If you're a CEO, (laughs) they had to drag Michael Eisner out kicking and screaming. Uh, You know, Bob Iger was originally supposed to step down in 2015. He's uh, now not going to go until December of 2021. So we're we're talking about something that's quite a year, uh, three years off. But, you know, in the interim, you know, we've seen so many candidates come up, you know, heir apparents named and and uh, dispatched. Uh, and so right. the Fox deal is, uh, is, is just, it's a huge one in a lot of ways. It's really going to have to force Disney to rethink its strategy. And it's going to introduce a lot of new executives into the fold who will be potential candidates to replace Bob. So we're going to get into that in a moment, but you mentioned that a lot of candidates' names have come up to succeed Bob Iger. Um, I remember talking to him back in 2015, was with him uh, on the Disney uh, headqu- at the Disney headquarters on the studio lots, and he said at that point, we asked him, like, What's going to happen? He goes, I'm going to be CEO through 2015. Well, we know that changed, as you report. Um, But we also asked him about political ambitions. And Jason and I were talking. We've got to ask you, before we get into who might take over for him at the company, you know, what about his political ambitions? I asked about it to him at that time. He goes, I'm not going to discuss it. I've not made any future plans. Um, You know, I'm going to continue to run this company, meaning the Walt Disney Company. But is that something, Bob Iger, is that still kind of – somewhat being talked about for Bob Iger. You can tell we have politics on the brain. (laughs) Why not today? Um, Well, yeah, it's still being talked about. Uh, My my sense is that, yes, he definitely considered a presidential run. And I think that the Fox decision uh, a year ago now uh, to buy that company was his his way of saying, look, I'm I'm taking myself out of the race. I'm staying until December 2021. You never know. Uh, but I, I think that was a, a big decision on his part that he would not run for president. He would stay with the Walt Disney Company. All right. So, Chris, take us inside the derby here. I mean, who are the odds on favorites? As you read the tea leaves, you talk to sources. Who should investors, who should we be looking out for? Well, internally, uh, there's sort of three people that come to mind. Bob Chapik, who heads the parks and the consumer products. Uh, Jimmy Pitaro, who's recently named to head ESPN. And kind of what most people would have thought is the sort of favorite right now is a guy named Kevin Mayer, who's headed strategy there for quite a long time, was the architect of a lot of big deals like buying Lucasfilm and Marvel and the Fox deal as well. And he's now been charged with uh, leading the company's uh, mission in sort of direct-to-consumer streaming businesses uh, and so, you know, that's sort of the future of television watching and how that develops over the next three years will be critical as to whether he's the CEO. 
Yeah, because what's kind of the most important unit still at Disney? Is it the ESPN unit? I mean, where is kind of the bread and butter still coming from? Uh, yes, yeah. so basically it's TV. It's been a shrinking percentage of the overall pie, but you know, uh, from having covered all these earnings calls, anytime there's any mm-hmm. signal of what's happening with ESPN subscriber accounts, boy, the stock moves. So uh, it's you know, it, you know, the movie business has come on really strong in recent years. Uh, parks have also grown dramatically, so they've taken a larger percentage, but that's going to change again with Fox. Now it's going to be basically they're doubling down on the TV business. Uh, you know, acquiring a lot of channels there. So um, it's going to be a, a shift back toward more TV. I mean, are we going to really figure out, I mean, will we have kind of a clear idea who might succeed, Bob? The only reason I ask is I remember when Jay Rizzullo and Tom Staggs, remember they were, what, CFO and then running theme parks, and then they kind of switched positions, and everybody said it's going to be one of these guys. And I think it's fair to say, and I think you might agree, agree with me, Chris, is that for those of us who maybe talked with them, great, obviously, executives, but it they weren't Bob Iger. <laughs> and right. you kind of knew that they might not succeed him, that it wasn't the kind of person to run the Walt Disney Company. It's a really difficult job. Yeah. Um, you know, you have so many disparate businesses from theme parks, consumer products, technology, movies, TV, uh, and then, uh, you know, just the sort of public, you know, the, the reputation of Disney, the, the connection with families and kids and, and uh, all over the world. You know, it is just uh, it is a it is very high profile. It needs a public person. It needs a person with a lot of skills and vision. I was going to say a certain amount of swagger. I don't know if that's the right word, but you know what I mean, like a certain yeah. type of uh, individual. sort of gravitas swagger, yeah. Hollywood style. Yeah. Um, so, Chris, while we have you, got to ask you about another story that uh, you were involved in, and that is concerning everyone's favorite topic. If you ask the kids in my neighborhood, that's Fortnite. Mm-hmm. Um, Fortnite, this deal with the NFL. Tell us about this. Well, this is the first time Fortnite has uh, basically a partnership to put some uh, outside branding into the game. It probably won't be the last. Um, uh, it's co- turned out to be kind of surprisingly controversial. You know, I've heard people, a lot of people talking about this. Oh, what, is this good for the NFL? Is this bad for Fortnite? Um, it, you know, it, it's obviously all the sports leagues are really embracing video games. They see this as a way to connect with uh, generations of fans, uh, younger fans, some of whom are, are no longer into sports like they used to be. Uh, and so um, it, you know, it sort of seemed uh, pr- pretty obvious to me, but there, there does seem to be this backlash uh, of, about it. Great stuff. Chris Palmieri, literally the hardest working man in Hollywood, joining us from our L.A. bureau out there on Bob Iger, Fortnite, and so much more, Carol. I'm trouble. Yeah, trouble All right. Well, it's the single most read story on the Bloomberg over the last eight hours. And I can't say I'm totally surprised, A, because the person who wrote it is a rock star. And second, it's got a great headline. In the private credit boom, 10% yields and a whole lot of risk. I'm reading that one. Wait, what? I did. Wait, what? Heather Perlberg joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. She's the author of this story. So, Heather, take us inside this growing, and we're talking about $100 billion uh, already under management, uh, firms lending money where banks will not. Hey, guys. Well, this is uh, the same theme we keep talking about. It's this uh, these permanent capital vehicles. So a lot of the private equity guys and others who see a way to bring in money they don't have to give back, and it pays really high fees. So it's pretty attractive to big and small investors at the moment. And you talk about one specific firm that hasn't had such a great go of it, the Taubs. Uh, What happened with them? 
They have a couple of different BDCs, a public one and a private one. The public one, a lot of these guys like to take them public because they can continue to raise more and more equity and they get paid on the fees. So the bigger you are, essentially, the more you're paid. And these guys just, you know, fell prey to making a lot of bad loans. There was bad underwriting. And they started going bad, uh, so investors ended up losing a ton of money. And a lot of these retail investors are attracted to these stocks for the fat dividends. So they don't know much about the companies they're actually investing in. Yeah, this is what I love, right? The, you're investing because you're loving, like I'm loving the, you know, the the yields here. Uh, it sounds pretty good. Uh, there's a lot of money flowing in, but right, the transparency, the underlying loans, like you want to know about it. And I do wonder, Heather, in an environment. And what I love about your stories, you throw. So many numbers in there about the private equity money, billions and billions of dollars uh, that are looking to go into uh, these private lending funds, um, that so much money chasing things makes me ultimately think that some of that money is going to chase really, really risky, dangerous investments. Exactly. The market just gets more and more competitive and people have to kind of go lower down the spectrum to give companies loans that aren't getting any money from banks and aren't even getting any money from the kind of better BDCs with the best reputation. So that leaves the sort of picked over stuff. And so, Heather, where does this go from here? I mean, it is... You know, it's obviously a growing market, but it's been growing in part, as you explained very well in your story, because the banks have stepped back from this. Rates are going to go up. The economy is going to turn. These loans are going to become even riskier. How much worry is there uh, out there that this may be a bit of a canary in the coal mine? Right now, you're not seeing sort of the skid marks you'd expect to see before the crash. But a lot of people say that this area in particular is where we will start to see the cracks. Um, And credit is, you know, certain areas are already getting really frothy. And you have big names like Blackstone and Carlyle and KKR coming in with billions and billions of dollars. They say they're going to do the best loans and kind of institutionalize the space. But it's going to be hard to know until another couple of years when the loans have been made and we see how they perform in a you know, weaker environment. I also think it's interesting that, you know, coming off the financial crisis, we said how great an environment with all this really cheap money that it gave corporate America the opportunity to, um, you know, reformulate their debt down to lower yields, right? We said, this is so great. They can put money on the balance sheet. It doesn't cost them so much. And here we are, and your story points it out that, you know, we're in this environment now with interest rates rising, corporate American deeper in debt than ever before, you know, it's a different environment. And if things start to go south and the economy starts to turn south, you know, these kinds of loans in particular, you know, could be at risk. Definitely more sensitive than others. And we'll be able to see very quickly who made the right ones and who made the wrong ones. In the meantime, can I just throw out 18 billion by KKR looking to go in this area, Blackstone starting a BDC, $10 billion. Uh, and you've got Carlisle and Goldman. I mean, these are the names, Jason. And Aries, which we uh, talked with Heather about a couple weeks ago and actually had Mike Arrogated, the CEO of Aries, on uh, not too long after that. Obviously, a huge name there. Really, the, the granddaddy, as Heather points out in her story. Heather Pearlberg, private equity reporter for Bloomberg, on the phone with us from Washington. Thanks so much, Heather. And, you know, I, I'm fascinated by this area because you have seen a lot of big institutional money that was used to getting these sorts of yields from private equity as the private equity firms have 
morphed into something far beyond just traditional buyouts. This is where they're looking, and there's so much money pouring in. Uh, it does become a little worrisome, though. I do also wonder, is it an opportunity, because the, the, the traditional banks aren't doing these loans, yeah. is it just you know financial firms coming in and, and finding a niche in the market, in the financial marketplace, and saying, hey, we'll fill that role, and that can be a good thing, right? There's the good, the bad, and the ugly to all this stuff sometimes. group of investment professionals pitching their latest ideas and you get the monthly Titans dinner. The host, of course, is Steve Kroll, managing director at Mona's Crespi Hart and Company, back in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. And you also throw in the mooch. Sure. <laughs> We're going to talk about that. Why not? <laughs> it's perfect on this midterm uh, Tuesday. So good to have you uh, back with us. What an interesting time. And we're going to give you your props because as you reminded us when you walked in, when we spoke with you on uh, September 11th, you said a market correction was coming. I said, I said or quote, would- if we're going to get a correction, <laughs> it has to come now because there's so many things that are still going on, which is North Korea, which we haven't change China which we haven't changed the Fed being a little bit more aggressive in talking earnings starting to not roll over but some companies are not making it and uh, you know you have all and then you can add the Saudi Arabia situation so if we're going to have a correction back then it had to come then I don't think the correction's over but you know we're probably bounced depending upon what happens tomorrow so correction not a bear market no it's not a bear market there, there, there's nowhere in my opinion right now there's nowhere else to go uh, name a country that uh, you can't just get a bounce from but uh, when our 10 year even though it's up a little bit is lower than most 10 years all over the world uh, the Fed can only do so much. Our earnings are in generally good. And where else can you put large amounts of money to get a return on it and feel safe? And it really comes back to the USA. So, uh, uh, you know, I say make America great, but in a different framework than other people have said it. So I'm looking at the list of uh, who was there and what they were talking about, Steve. And, you know, financials, banks especially, I feel like we were talking about them a lot at the front end of earnings season, and then we kind of lost the thread a little bit. What, what's the thought among the group on, well, on financials? Well, there are a lot of them like them, and I think that they've all made a mistake on one half of the equation. Um, I think rates are going to continue to go up uh, stubbornly, but the big thing that everyone has missed on is that loan volume is terrible. Mm. Uh, they brought back uh, money back from Europe. Uh, or wherever, you know, trillions of dollars. The consumer and and corporations are confused. They don't know what is the tax bill going to be really. They don't know really what's going on from day to day because the news events are just are chilling in sense of spinning people around. So capital spending is going down, not up, uh, relative to what we thought. Mm-hmm. So the banks make money on the spread, which is up a little bit, like a, a tick or so, but on, on, on loans, they're not making anything. All the regional banks had, you know, up a percent in, in terms of loans. So the banks have not played. I think they will, but, um, you know, we're here, here we are. The only stocks that have really played have been the, some of the momentum stocks, the Boeings and the McDonald's right. and those things. The rest of the market's been left alone the whole year. Well, talk about, because when you guys get together and you do this usually every month, I think you take some time off in the summer, um, but you get up and 
your folks present their ideas. It's right. not a case right. that you guys go back and forth and you debate it. You just say, hey, here's what I'm I'm interested in or here's what I'm buying. Right. Tell us about some of the interesting uh, well, ideas first, that kind of came uh, up. There's 20 uh, of what I call the biggest financiers in, in the world. Uh, we usually represent about $5 trillion of their companies that they represent. I will say this time they were a little bit shell shocked after October because a yeah. lot of them have suffered. Shocktober, yeah. uh, they have had shocktober. They have they have suffered really? some serious declines. Yeah, yeah, they were, they were not their usual effervescent self. And we still served <laughs> wine, so it wasn't a problem. But they were just, they were they were they were you know a lot of them have had. They do know markets go up and down. They right? do that. They do, but not in, you know except for the one in February, they have not really experienced that. Yeah. And hedge funds have had a really not a hedge fund mentality. They've had a long only mentality so all of a sudden you walk in october the fed says maybe two or three or four or whatever it is you take a 10 percent hit and that's in the averages but in some stocks you're down 20 percent um however after we got over the initial uh thing uh, you know tony despierto uh, head guy at blackrock likes the market down here thinks this is a normal correction even though no one likes to go through a, yeah. a normal correction and he likes uh, aj gallagher and masco um, they were uh, Harvey Eisen had mentioned the banks, but he had an interesting uh, take on it. Beside the banks, J.P. Morgan and, and Citi and what have you, he thinks that private equity is really raising money all over the place. So who's going to benefit from private equity with, with high dividends, which is you know Blackstone, right. uh, Carlisle, and and. KKR and, and the other ones, which I actually think is probably, um, it's like getting on the ETF bandwagon back a couple of years yeah. ago. And I think that probably, and they all pay 6 7%, so, and they're going to take in huge amounts of money. Now, private equity will eventually have a, its comeuppance, but not probably to 2020. Well, and that's certainly the case. I mean, Steve Schwartzman has made this case till he's blue in the face about his stock being undervalued and he keeps pointing to that dividend and uh, and and that's and, and growing business. If yeah. you were if money was coming out of the uh the, the, the group. And it wasn't you, just coming in. Right, and it wasn't that, also coming in. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. I don't see a lot of technology. I do see Google. No, I think uh I think a lot of them have gotten whacked on the uh on the uh on the technology, one person was quite interesting. I don't know if you remember. Name is Chris Levy. He used to be head of Merrill Lynch Asset. Yeah, of course. And he uh, was re- retired uh, against his own will. But he, out of the blue, went into cannabis, which I find is a funny. All right, so let's talk about that because we had <laughs> we have had a guy come in a couple times over the past couple months who's raising money, uh, ex retail guy, very successful, uh, and we keep sort of pressing him and others on this idea of can you really make money at this right now what's the bull case for cannabis the bull case he went through it in great detail on the private side ah. is huge because you're not paying the for, for instance if you want to rent out a building um and you uh uh, do it normally, it's going to be X amount. If you do it, if they're, if they're going to go on the public side, they're going to pay $15 a foot. If they do it on a private side, they're going to do $10 a foot. He says he's making all his money on the private side, sometimes 10 times over. The public stocks, he thinks, are all overpriced. He yeah. wouldn't touch them with a 10-foot pole. And this is someone that's made hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in the last two years on the space and when he came to my office two years ago to tell me about it, I, I, I said, I can't talk about it. This, you know, this stuff's against the law. I don't know it. I don't do it. Right. And he's, you know, and now the interest level is still on the private side is huge. huge. Well, it's interesting. And our guest, we're talking about Peter, Peter Horvath. That's right. Right. Uh, over at Green Growth Brands. And I mean, they're planning to go public in the next week or so. And they've done some capital raises, but that's their plan. 
I mean, and they've got a lot of private money coming in, yes. but we'll see. It's a, that's a really interesting point that we'll see whether the public appetite is really there and, and uh, predictable in any way. I, I hate to always have you – I hate to have you go, but 20 seconds left. What surprised you? Anything in terms of the, the investment ideas that were kicked? No, around? not the ideas. I think the, uh, the mood that we couldn't go down, they didn't expect it to go down, and the fangs that they all think are attractive, that a fang could go down 20%. You know, they were, they were overpriced, in some cases, overpriced stocks, and the market yeah. came correct. Yes or and, no? Are they nervous about tonight? Uh, not really. Uh, I think it's pretty – they're split. But I think that the, uh, the issue will be that uh, we will probably test the lows one yeah. more time. Steve Kroll over at Mona's Crispy Heart & Company joining us right here on Bloomberg Radio. Steve, thank you. This is Bloomberg. Well, I know John Ehrlichman is jamming out to that intro music. He deserves it. He's a rock star. Uh, Talking today, Carol, about a story that amid all the election hoopla has really captured a lot of attention, and that is Amazon. This was a wait what moment again. It was a wait what moment uh, amid many along the long tortured saga of Amazon to HQ2. And it turns out to be maybe a little anticlimactic, dare I say. John Ehrlichman, of course, is the uh, open BNN Bloomberg's The Open anchor, uh, as well as a correspondent for CTV National News, joining us uh, from Toronto on the phone there. So, John, I I mean, seriously, this is what we get? I I hate to sound so disappointed and bratty, but uh, okay, so they're going to set up shop in a couple places where they already have offices. Right, right. New York area, Long Island City is obviously the the one that's been reported along with with Northern Virginia. Um, Look, I Here's my big takeaway, Jason and Carol, is that um, it is true that Amazon had put out a statement where they said they were going to take time and find a new second headquarters. That's fact. They put it out there. They said they were going to spend, you know, $5 billion and find 50,000 people to work over the coming years. And now they've changed their tune. Um, And and I, I think at the end of the day, uh, if people are going to get frustrated with Amazon for uh, ultimately splitting it in two, and as Seattle's mayor uh, kind of took a victory lap and called these branch offices, <laughs> if it ends up being it this way, um, maybe it's just a reminder, because I've said this on your show before, I believe it, at the top of the food chain in corporate America these days is Amazon. Yeah. I mean, is there any other company out there yeah. that every business board of directors is worried about? Um, I, you know, I think they long ago surpassed Apple, and, and we still cover those Apple events, which have a lot of hype and not as, you know, maybe not as much meat on the bones as you would think. So this is still a situation where they're going to create a lot of new jobs and create a lot more Amazon in, in a couple of different locations. But, but right. I hear you. you well, know, I, I hear I, you. What? I, well, I I'm just saying. No, 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 no. I, I want to talk. Uh, All right. I, mean, I also love the idea, Jeez. and we have a story that just got a read spike on the journal about. It's also brilliant in the sense that they got all these ideas from all these different people. They essentially crowdsourced. Yeah planning for probably the next 25 to 50 years in terms of their own expansion by getting all this free work from all these mayors and county executives and local executives, right? Yeah, I I, I think so. But, you know, I think think cities uh, have learned from this process as well. 
Um, you know, here in here in Toronto, uh, it was the only Canadian city on that final list of twenty. Yeah, and there's a lot of tech entrepreneurs here who who are very anti Amazon because they feel like there are some tech companies that are small but growing in this tech ecosystem here, and that if an Amazon comes in, they kind of stomp on that. Now, theoretically, people could go into the Amazon world. They could come out. They could start another Amazon. But let's say now New York – you know, is 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 getting one of these um, uh, operations uh, offices. Um, that's going to suck up a lot of New York tech talent that, yeah. that might have gone into some of the great New York startups as well. So I think I think we see both sides of it, uh, and it's always hard to figure out the exact math because we don't know exactly. What the what the sort of the handouts from the cities are? You know what I mean? Like we know that Governor yeah. Cuomo is talking about changing his name to Amazon, uh, and that's kind of funny. But I'll change. but we don't know the specifics too but, much. But what's interesting too, John? And I was thinking of a story, Jason, that was in Bloomberg Business Week that looked at the impact that um, Amazon had on the Seattle area, yeah. and that they were hoping to learn from some of the traffic congestion problems, the strain on infrastructure in the Seattle area as a result of their building uh, their company there, and hoping hoping to do it kind of better next time around. And I do wonder, I mean, putting another HQ2, that's a lot of people in one spot yes. and a lot of strain again on existing infrastructure wherever it might be. And that by splitting it up, you know, it's a little bit less stress, still a big impact, but a little bit less stress. Uh, it also gives Amazon too big more hubs. Yeah. No, you know, you're, you're, you're absolutely right, Carol. I mean, all the reporting would suggest Amazon was worried about the criticism they would ultimately face if they were entering a new market and then going to face the same kind of criticism they already deal with in Seattle. But I think the big takeaway is these, you know, and Jason, you said it, learning from this. I mean, here in Toronto, you've got Google is trying to build literally a digital city within a city. Yeah. I mean, these companies are gathering information at light speed. Uh, and the big takeaway is, boy, other businesses better be ready because these companies are sucking up information left, right, and center uh, about virtually every part of running an operation and how you interact with the, yeah. with the city officials. It's scary stuff. Yeah, it is. And it's pretty amazing. Um, anyway, we'll wait for Amazon to confirm exactly where they'll be building these headquarters. John Ehrlichman, thank you, thank you. Anchor, be CNN Bloomberg's The Open, correspondent for CTV National News, joining us on the phone from Toronto. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week, live from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Carol Masser, along with Jason Kelly, and we are Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for the drive to the close. John Lynch is back with us, Executive Vice President, Chief Investment Strategist at LPL Financial, with us from Charlotte, North Carolina, on this midterm election day. John, uh, good to have you here on Bloomberg Radio. It's Thank you, Carol. Hey, we've been having a conversation that, you know, we've had a fair amount of guests who are like, yeah, the midterms don't matter. Do they matter to you? Absolutely. They matter quite a bit because they're grabbing our investors' attention. So we need to keep everybody focused. Clearly, there are a lot of concerns, right? It's been a very volatile period over the past month. 
in particular. But I think if we do get clarity, probably what some of your other guests were suggesting, once we get a degree of clarity, investors can once again focus on trade, earnings, and the Fed, because I think those are really going to be the primary drivers of performance in 2019. So, John, I want to go back to something you said right at the top, which is it concerns your investors, it concerns your customers. What are they saying? When they call you up, when they send you emails, what are they saying? Well, it's the uncertainty. It's, you know, the the old adage, investors hate uncertainty, so they're very concerned uh, to what degree, to what extent, you know, a flipping of the house could mean. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, we think a flipping of the house, when you have, uh, uh, you know, gridlock being perceived as good and historically being perceived as good with positive returns under Republican president with a Democratic Congress, uh, that tends to be favorable for the market. But the, I, I guess the, it's been such a politically volatile period. Maybe uh, you know, over the past 30 years, it seems like every couple of years, every four years of the presidential election, people get the concerns are, are heightened a little bit more, and so that's why I think it's really important to reinforce the fundamentals with investors. Well, I also, yeah, yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons why, you know, we see these swings politically. I think, you know, people feeling like they've, they they don't have a voice. And so, you know, uh, it goes back and forth a little bit in terms of extremes to the left, to the right. What I do want to go back to what, what Jason, uh, Jason mentioned about, you know, your investors and what they saw in the Shocktober uh, month of trading uh, with equities selling off a lot. It was interesting. We had Steve Kroll on and he has this Titans dinner with big money managers, you know, I think a trillion dollars that they're managing. And those guys, he said, were a little bit shell-shocked. These are, you know, again, investors who have seen all kinds of market cycles and they were a bit shell-shocked by October. Was it a normal correction in your view? Uh, not at all, because if you think just if you think about it in the context of the midterm election year, we had a 700 basis point gain in the equity market in the third quarter. Typically, you don't have that, right? Typically, it's a lag, and it looks like we got we achieved the 700 basis point uh, uh, third quarter. We ended up losing that in October, and I think a lot of that had to first off the third quarter gain had to do with uh, the administration's. Uh, switch from fighting a multi-front trade war, right? So we made progress with South Korea and Mexico, Canada, and Europe. Uh, so now it's only a what appears to be a one-front trade war. But then in October, we had uh, Jerome Powell's comments that the, the economic outlook was remarkably positive, so that obviously escalated investors' fears relative to interest rates. And then Vice President Pence became a little more uh, hard line, if you will, relative to China, and that's why we lost that 700 basis point. Uh, gain that we had in the third quarter we ended up losing in October. Uh, I wanted to ask you about healthcare because one of the things that our Washington bureau chief shared with us uh, when he was in with us a few minutes ago was this idea that healthcare has been kind of this stealth issue um, throughout, right. uh, especially this latter stage uh, of the campaign. How do you see that from an investor's perspective, especially because both from a personal consumption perspective, but also from an investment perspective, healthcare is an incredibly robust and, and active group. Absolutely. And it's a fascinating story because healthcare investors tomorrow, regardless of what happens, can claim victory. Yeah. Because either if, if, if the right holds on to the, the, uh, the house, then suddenly it's a pharmaceutical play. Uh, if the left retakes the house, then it's a managed care play and hospital stock play. So uh, you, you can have uh, multiple winners in healthcare, which is why it kind of plays a balance to the degree investors should be playing, if you will, a barbell strategy relative to sector weightings. You know, healthcare kind of is uh, uh, Geneva 
relative to the market volatility. Well, it's interesting. In healthcare, if you look at uh, the major industry groups in the S&P 500, your second best performer uh, in the index this year, and it's up, Jason, about 9.4%. So we continue to see uh, that's certainly uh, the outperformance uh, in the market. Where else? Is there other names based on the outcome of the elections, uh, John, that that you would be placing bets? Well, yeah, well, we, we are placing bets, uh, continue to place bets in value, financials, uh, industrials. We think uh, either way, you know, to the point about health care, I think infrastructure is going to be a winner either way. Uh, if the president loses the, the, the House, uh, more apt to do a, a, a stronger infrastructure deal. So when you factor in clarity on infrastructure, obviously the repatriation investment, and to the degree we get some progress on trade with the, when the new Congress convenes early next year, I think that bodes very well for the industrial sector. And then within the financial sector, you know, you may see, you know, some headline risk, but any of the actions that we've seen thus far have been, haven't really been congressional. They've been more tweaking on the financial sector. And if you look into what, uh, uh, Vice Chair of Supervision at the Federal Reserve, whose name is uh, Randall Quarles, <laughs> yeah. Randall Quarles, and what he's doing, reducing the stress on the tre- stress tests. I think that bodes very, very well for the group. We just need some right. clarity. All right. We're going to wrap it up there. Thank you, John Lynch, Executive Vice President, Chief Investment Strategist at LPL Financial. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.